Will you pray with me? Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts together be acceptable in your sight. Through Christ Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So Jesus had set his face toward Jerusalem. We are in the middle of a long summer series called Summer Travels with Jesus, talking about the fact that all through this journey from the north to Jerusalem, Jesus never had the privilege of what I experienced just at the beginning of the week, which was coming home to a place that seemed like home to me, a place that I could say, this is my home, this is where I've set my place. Jesus, you remember, said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This is a, this is a season in which we look at a very disruptive time for Jesus. He's just making his way along and pursuing the fulfillment of a mission that had been set apart for him because he is the fulfillment of all that Isaiah had prophesied when he talked about the suffering servant of God. This is the one who will be a light to all the nations. This is the one who will redeem the world not through conquering and force, but through redemptive suffering. Jesus has a destiny in Jerusalem, and it's weighing more and more upon him. But he continues to offer teaching and proclamation about the kingdom of God. His business is to announce the kingdom of God, and those whose eyes light up when he announces it, to welcome them in and show them how it will be in the kingdom of God. We forget, 2,000 years later, that because of the gift of the Holy Spirit, the church's ministry is to continue the work that Jesus began in his own life and ministry. Which is to say, our job is to announce the kingdom of God, faithfully announce the kingdom of God, and to find the eyes that light up when we do, and then to show them how to live like kingdom people. Seems like a pretty simple mission, doesn't it? But things press in from every side and things get confusing. We might say that the trouble for Jesus began when he set his face toward Jerusalem because the people in Jerusalem weren't going to receive him well. But the truth is the trouble began for him way back in Bethlehem. Do you remember how he came into the world? There was no room for him. In the midst of a census, an enrollment, his own parents traveling far from their own home. In the midst of all of that, God was doing something wonderful, but the people in which, uh, in Bethlehem, the, the town in which Jesus appeared upon the earth, these people were so busy with their everyday, workaday lives that they took no notice at all. We saw some fantastic sights on our trips, and I promise you that I will not bore you with the verbal slides from our vacation. But one of the things that continued to astound me was the number of waterfalls that we saw, both in Scotland and in Switzerland, just cascading down these, you know, two and three thousand foot uh, distances, and and how they would eventually flow into a little bit larger rill or stream or brook, and then that would flow into something else. And then by the time you got to the big cities, 
You have the Thames or the Seine, or you have the River Ness that flows through Inverness, and you have these impossibly large rivers flowing along. Do you see this is how the kingdom of God works? A tiny rivulet starts in Bethlehem and begins to stir, and it joins in with two or three fishermen and a tax collector and a few others, and then it starts to become a brook, and then it starts to tumble down, and then multitudes are added, and more and more, and the river now must run its course. It's a river of life running through our world, and it has gotten huge, and we are part of it. It's a powerful thing. And every so often, something will happen and cause you to sit up and say, wait a minute, this isn't part of what we're doing. At least it happened that way for Jesus. He was teaching about the kingdom of God and of this powerful movement of God and the, of the, the, the life that he was bringing into the world. He's announcing it and somebody calls out from the crowd, recognizing in Jesus that he's a just man, a righteous teacher, that he will know the law inside and out. And this man calls out from the crowd, teacher, demand that my brother will divide the family inheritance. Would you? Hmm. Jesus' answer to him is, that's not my job, and I don't blame him. I have been blessed to walk alongside families for 35 years who are going through the grief process, and they all do, you know. The last time I checked, in fact, a colleague of mine was talking to me just the other day, but the last time I checked, there is a 100% mortality rate among the human species. Let that sink in you know, on this happy Sunday morning. But this is what is in the back of Jesus' mind. And I have walked with families through the bereavement process, and I have seen the strength in families. I've seen powerful moments when estranged people will come together and they will work it out and they'll do it all for the sake of the one they loved, and they stand there and you see this immense strength pour forward. Then they go across the hall and they put a fork full of macaroni salad in their mouth. And then as they start to go home, there is the estate to be dealt with. And that's when the fun starts. No, she said, I could have the china, not you. You know, Dad always said that when we were gone, he would give me the rug. What about this part of the estate? Didn't, didn't Mom and Dad help you there? Shouldn't some consideration be taken off for that? If we're going to make things equitable. And it all starts in a reasonable conversation, but because money is involved, the reason goes out the window in about 20 seconds, and emotions rise up, and, and the squabbling begins. In Jesus' time, there was a law that said that the eldest got two-thirds of the estate, start right, and then everything else, the other third, was divided among the remaining siblings. And I don't know the circumstances of this man, I, th I think it's probably not a story like the prodigal son where he wanted a, an advance on his portion. I think rather that this man had probably seen his parents pass away, but his older brother was sitting on things and taking his own sweet time, not giving him his due, not releasing him, not sending him out. And so he comes to Jesus and he said, look, you're a, a clearly a teacher who understands the law inside and out and it flows from within you. Will you tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me? Would you get him to get over it? But Jesus tells him, my job isn't to wade into a family and choose between one greedy person and another. 
It's not my job. In fact, what I'm going to tell you now is to be on guard against all kinds of greed. Do you know there were different kinds of greed in the world? There's the greed of those who have a lot and just never take notice of anyone else, and so they can't see the ones around them. And there's the greed of those who have nothing in the world. Isn't that funny? You don't have to be rich to be greedy. I've met some miserly people in my day, and some of them have no more than two nickels to rub together, but they're, they're desperate for the day when they're going to have it all, and they treat the world like misers. So there's the greed that has and is unaware of how much they have. A lot of us fit into that. There's the one who has nothing and wants nothing more than to have. And then there's the kind of greed that has some and then sits out to make a plan to acquire a lot more, even if it causes suffering. They know what they're doing. So there's all kinds of greed operating all around us. And Jesus said, I don't care what your motives are. Greed is greed is greed is greed. And you, you're going to be a part of the kingdom of God. You've got to be on guard against all kinds of it. You guys with me on this? Because then he told a parable, a funny little parable. There was a man who had uh, an abundance of, of crops come in one year. He was a farmer. And he looked around, he said, I have no place to put all this. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tear down the perfectly good barns that I've got, and I'm going to replace them with bigger barns, and I'm going to put all the grain in there. And as he was in the process of doing that, he said, I am doing some quick calculations here, and I am set for life. Now it's time for me, the hard worker, to sit back, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And on that very night, says the parable that Jesus told, on that very night, God came to him and said, you fool, this very night, your life is required of you. Now, who's going to get the fortune that you have amassed? I, I want to be careful here and not make a bad guy out of this farmer. The wind and the waves and the rain and the soil and the sunlight all conspired to give him an abundance one day. He was just a farmer. It doesn't say that he created genetically engineered crops or that he laser planed his fields or that he, he put extra time in and put grow lights on at night and did all of this. He didn't do anything out of the ordinary. He was most likely a very hardworking, somewhat conservative and thrifty farmer. The kind of people you and I would meet every day driving up and down the freeways going on their way to work. He was just going about his business, and life handed him a windfall. The problem isn't the way he grew his crops. The problem is, as you read the parable, he has nothing to say about anybody except one person. He talks to himself. He thinks about himself. He provides for himself. He plans for himself. And he has no thought of anyone else around him at all. And so, in the parable, Jesus says, the Lord called the man a fool. And you can see why. Because when all we ever think, talk, and act about is ourselves, 
then the kingdom of God is never going to go any further than you or I can take ourselves. We're not worshiping God anymore. We're worshiping the self. If my vision only goes so far, then my kingdom will only go that far. If my steps can only go so far before I'm out of energy, then my experience of God's world will only go that far. And what Jesus is trying to say is that there's a huge, big world that God has created that is so much more than all of us, than any of us, so much more than me. Fool, he said. It's interesting to link greed with foolishness, isn't it? But to be greedy is to feed the self. And Jesus is about to preach a kingdom in which we rise up out of that foolishness and we take note of the people around us, all the people around us. And we welcome them and we have compassion toward them. And we do the God stuff toward them. We do it Jesus' way. This is what Jesus is trying to get across. And someone who is so absorbed in themselves that they can't see anyone else around them is never going to hear it. So Jesus said, be on guard. There are so many things that come to our life, and they're just things, but they weigh us down, and they make us spiritually stupid. So let go of the things. Let go. Let them fly and cling to God instead. It's a simple message, but it's so hard to do. Truth be known, those of us who are so caught up in self will find that we are just like that little town of Bethlehem in our hearts. Crowded out God with so many things, so many worries, so many anxieties, so much stuff that even if Jesus did stand at the door and knock, we couldn't get the door to open because all the stuff on the inside is pressing right up against the door. And there's no way to let him in. Oh, be on guard against all kinds of greed. Rise up above the foolishness and set our, things on, our sights on the things of God. I believe we're living in a crisis age for the church right now. And I'm not talking about FUNCO. I am talking about the body of Christ. We've come to a crossroads in history. We're at a time when everything is changing. The church is going through a, a season in which it's, it's not as popular as it used to be. People aren't flocking to our doors. People aren't waking up on Sunday morning and the first place they set out is to go to church, many of them. You are the exception. Do you know that? That you're an exception now? There are more people gathering in coffee houses and restaurants than gather in places like this. And the crisis we're facing is that some preachers and some congregations in desperation to hang on to the crowds are willing to adapt the message of the gospel to whatever is going to tickle the itching ears of every generation. Don't go away, don't go away. You don't like the sermon? I won't preach for 40 minutes, I'll preach for 20. Ha <laughs> bet me. Don't go away, don't go away. You, if you don't like that music, we'll fire up something else. Don't go away, don't go away. We'll have somebody do all the praying for you. 
You just come in and push the button that applies to you and we'll take care of it. You know, John Wooden once said, the great coach and teacher at UCLA, he once said, the worst thing you can ever do for someone you love is to do something that they could and should do for themselves. And so Pastor Jerry and I are not going to pray for you. You're going to have to figure it out. We'll pray with you. Bill Eason once said, he used to say that to people in hospitals. Preacher, will you pray for me? And he would say, no, but I'll pray with you. Well, I don't know how to pray. And he'd say, can you say help? (laughs) Bill Eason wasn't a very compassionate fellow. But he was right. How do we get stronger but to exercise our legs and our arms? How do we get our prayer life stronger but to exercise it? Our job as preachers is to announce the kingdom. Your job is to step in along with us and to exercise our faith, to rise into kingdom stuff. And I hear people talking and responding to things like the news in the week this, in the, new, the news that take place this week, you know, shooting after shooting after shooting. And the answers I'm hearing from people who want to call themselves Christian are causing me to scratch my head. If you can defend what you're saying with Scripture, I'll listen to you all day long. If you have reasoned it out and it makes sense to you and you can make a passionate case for what you feel about things like guns and other things, then I'll listen to you. But the number of people who walk into churches these days having already made up their mind about everything and they hold the pastor's sermon up and say he said something I don't like there he said something I didn't like there and so I'm going to disagree and I'm going to walk out well I'm sorry but at the end of this passage the man you know that Jesus spoke with um, was a little bit disappointed except that he was offered the kingdom of God we need to make sure that as Christians, when we respond to the news of the day, that we are responding with the Word of God and with the Christian uh, heart. We need to bring the heart of Jesus to the forefront. Jesus who died and in his death blessed the people who were killing him. That's the standard, my friends. Not retribution, Not punishment. Not singling out this or that person and saying, they don't belong here. Come to me, all who are heavy laden and are carrying heavy burdens. And I will give you rest. Not come to me, all who come from certain parts of the world. Not come to me, all who have a certain tint to their skin or a certain lifestyle in which you live, or a certain way of being in the world, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I met with some good Christian friends yesterday, and one of them was asking, what are you preaching about tomorrow? I said the parable about the guy who built the barns and then had to give up his life that night. And we started talking, and talked a lot about stewardship and talked a lot about money, and... uh, got uncomfortable in a few places, as it does for all of us when we talk about money. But at the end of the day, 
I said, you know, when I have cash in my pocket, I always understand that it belongs to Jesus and I'm just doing his work. And so when a beggar asks me for something, I, uh, I give it to him. And my friend said, well, what if he just goes out and buys a drink? And I said, well, that's between him and God. That's between him and God. My job is to do the part that God calls me to do. And I've got to be a steward of God's resources. And so I give. Judy and I were in London. We were just taking a walk, and we were finishing our walk and almost to the hotel, and we stopped by a little store to get uh, some piece of fruit to eat on the, for dessert that night. And there was a man laying there on the sidewalk, and uh, he just held out his hand, and I had no cash. And so I walked into the store, and as I walked by, he said, you can't even see me sitting here? And I came out a few minutes later, and I dropped a two-pound coin in his hand. And he looked up at me, and he said, with tears in his eyes, I am so sorry. I was so sorry I was short with you just a minute ago. I said, I had no cash. I had nothing I could give you. His name is Anthony. He has no toes on his left foot. And uh, he, he really can't get around. He, somebody drops him off, and he begs all day long. Would you pray for Anthony today sometime? Just think about him. Um, what blew me away was how quickly his anger turned to blessing when he realized that someone had seen him and took notice. This isn't a hero story about me. It's a hero story about Anthony. And it's a, it's a story of hope about all of us because if he can do it, sitting there on a sidewalk where it's starting to rain with no shoes on one foot and no toes on the other, if he can learn how to bless and forgive someone who he perceived had injured him, then so can all of us. All it takes is that we stop being fools, rise above ourself, give up the greed, and make room right here for the one who stepped into the world in Bethlehem and rose out of the world leaving us to do his work in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.